0: Are you looking for a word from God today? If so, First Baptist Dallas is glad to present this dynamic message by Dr. Robert Jeffers. Dr. Jeffers is a premier Bible teacher, pastor, and author whose practical applications of God's truth help guide and encourage those who seek to know and follow the Lord Jesus. I know you'll be blessed. And now, the message by Dr. Robert Jeffers. Buyer's remorse. You know the concept, don't you? It's that feeling you have after making a large purpose and you begin second-guessing your decision. If only I had bought a bigger size or a different color. If only I'd waited for a sale. You know, the only thing more painful than second-guessing your decisions with regret second-guessing those decisions with fear doing what you think is the right thing and then starting to fear the consequences Uh, a student decides that uh, they're not going to cheat on the exam but then they begin to worry what if i failed the course an employee refuses to follow her boss's edict to cheat to cut corners and then she begins to fear what if i lose my job a christian begins to obey God through tithing, but then begins to wonder, what if I don't have enough money? We had a viewer of Pathway to Victory in, our, in Virginia recently who wrote to us and said that she had listened to a, marriage, uh, a message on marriage and made the commitment to obey God and stay in her marriage, but then she began to fear, what if? That means I'm condemned to a life of loneliness and unhappiness. You know, we sing the song, or we used to, you remember it, Trust and Obey, for there's no other way than to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. It's a nice song, but it's somewhat misleading. If you interpret it to mean if you trust and obey God, everything's gonna turn out all right. Well, eventually that's true, but it doesn't happen immediately. Sometimes we regret not just wrong decisions, but right decisions. As we're going to discover today in our study in the life of Abraham, there's only one remedy to regrets over the right decisions we make, and that remedy is faith. If you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 14. Genesis chapter 14, as we discover some help in refusing to second guess our right decisions. Now remember where we are in the study of Abraham's life Remember last time Abraham finally decided to obey God and separate himself from Lot, who was just a spiritual drag on his relationship with God. And so their herds were getting bigger and bigger and Abraham says to his nephew Lot, this land's not big enough for both of us. So what I'm gonna do is Lot, you look out over there and you choose whatever land you want. Choose the best land and I'll take what is left over. And of course, what Lot did is he gazed into the Jordan Valley that also included Sodom and Gomorrah. He saw the oasis there. He said, that's my land. That's what I want. That decision was based over discontent with what he had. He refused to consult with God about what God's choice would be. And he failed to consider the ramifications for his own family to make that move on the outskirts of Sodom and Gomorrah. And we see what happened in chapter 14 to Lot. Now look at this, beginning with verses one and two. And it came about in the days of Amphreel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Alasar, Kedolaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, that they made war with Bera, king of Sodom, and with Bersha, the king of Gomorrah, Shinab, the king of Adma, and Shimabur, the king of Zeboam, and the king of Bela, that is, Zoar. Don't those verses just warm your heart? <laughs> what if you were reading through the Bible and that was your memory verse for the week? <laughs> but don't lose heart here. There's more to this story. It's setting up for an important story for us. Verses three and four. And all these kings came as allies to the Valley of Sidom, that is the Salt Sea, the Dead Sea, we call it today. 12 years they had served keto but the 13th year they rebelled. Now, here's what's going on here. The kings of the Jordan Valley that included the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah they had lived for years under the reign of a coalition of Eastern kings led by Leomer. And so they had paid taxes to Leomer every year for 12 years. But after 12 years of paying taxes to this monarch, they kind of like our American colonists decided no taxation without representation. We're not going to pay King Henry anymore. We're not going to pay King Kedeleomer anymore. We're going to stop paying to this coalition of kings. They did that in the 13th year, quit paying their taxes in the 14th year. Ketoliomer said, we're not gonna put up with this rebellion any longer. So Ketoliomer leads a group of kings from the east and they invade the Jordan Valley where these rebellious kings were, including the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. And what happens when Ketoliomer invades? Well, some of the people fled immediately to the hills of Masada. We're going this spring, some of you are going with us. We'll see Masada. Uh, Some of them fled there, leaving their possessions behind. Uh, Verse 10 tells us there were tar pits in the area. Tar that was used earlier to build the Tower of Babel. Some of the kings fled and got stuck in the tar pits. That was the king of Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, They left behind their treasures. And those residents who stayed, including the residents of Sodom and Gomorrah, they were taken captive. Now, Who was living in Sodom and Gomorrah when this war broke out and the residents were taken captive? Guess who was there? Our old friend Lot. It's interesting, the last time we saw Lot in chapter 13, he moved to the edge of Sodom, this city of wickedness. He didn't move into it yet, but he was kind of attracted to it, catalyzed by it, so he moved to the edge. When we get to chapter 14, he's right smack dab in the middle of Sodom, and he ends up getting taken captive by Ketolay armor. Now, I point out an obvious but important truth. The most dangerous place in the world you can be is outside God's will. When you're outside God's will, you're in the most dangerous place you can be. Likewise, the safest place you can be, regardless of what's going on around you, is in the middle of God's will. Lot had moved his family outside God's will, and so they end up being taken captive along with the other captives. Now, what happens? Look at verse 13. Then a fugitive, somebody escaped from those who had been taken captive and told Abram the Hebrew, Now, Abram was living by the oaks of Mamre. Now, there's an interesting nuance here in the Hebrew language. It says Abram was living in Canaan by the oaks of Mamre. That word, Hebrew word living, means existing. It's the idea of a temporary dwelling place. Remember, Abraham lived in a tent even though he was a wealthy man. He wanted to be free to listen to the voice of God whenever it came, telling him to move. Abraham wasn't looking for an earthly home. He was looking for a heavenly home. He had his traveling shoes, as that glee club sang about. He had his traveling shoes all on all the time, always ready to listen to the the voice of God. He was just simply temporarily residing in Canaan. On the other hand, Lot, verse 12 of chapter 13 says, he settled in the city of Sodom. He settled in the region of Sodom. He put down roots there. He thought he was at home when he had reached Sodom. You know, the Bible says we are to live not like Lot, who puts down roots, deep tent stakes into this world. We're to live like Abraham, who was looking for a better reward. We are simply aliens passing through this land. As the old gospel song says, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. You know, when I think about that, I think about the late British writer Malcolm Muggeridge. He had an autobiography, Chronicles of Wasted Time, and he talked about in his autobiography as feeling like a stranger in this world, he said. And one time, a television journalist asked him what he meant by living as a stranger in this land. And this is what Malcolm Muggeridge said. In World War II, I was in North Africa when I heard a lieutenant colonel use the phrase displaced person. That phrase was very poignant to me, but it's a very good definition of a person who's come to see that life is not about carnal things, it's not about success, but it's about eternity rather than time. I don't really belong here, I'm simply staying here. That was Abraham's philosophy. I'm not really belonging in this world, I'm just staying in this world for now. Contrast that to Lot, who thought this world was the final place for him. He drove down those stakes in the city of Sodom, and isn't it interesting that the one who ended up getting uprooted was Lot? He got taken captive. And so when Abraham heard the news from this fugitive that his nephew had been taken captive, what was his reaction? Now, let's do an honest test here. If you had a family member or a friend who had taken advantage of you business-wise, cheated you, say, and you knew they were living in rebellion against God, and you got the news that something bad had happened to that family member who had mistreated you, how would you respond? Don't lie to your pastor, you know exactly oh, I'd be so heartbroken. No, you wouldn't. Most people would take some pleasure in hearing that somebody had wronged them, had some harm befall them. But that wasn't Abraham. That wasn't Abraham. Abraham wanted to rescue his nephew, Lot. You see, Abraham understood that true love is not giving people what they deserve, it's giving people what they need. Isn't that how God dealt with us? In Titus three, verses four and five, it says, when the kindness of God our savior and his love for mankind appeared, God saved us not on the basis of deeds, which we've done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. Aren't you glad we serve a kind God? A God who doesn't give us what we deserve, justice, separation from God, punishment for our sins, but he gives us what we need, and that is grace. That's exactly what Abraham did with Lot. He dealt with him according to grace, and so he organized a group of 318 men. Verse 15 says, 318 men, and they go on a rescue mission, they go after the forces of Cato Leomer. they defeat Cato Leomer, who runs for the hills and leads all the stolen loot behind, including the hostages that included Lot. And from this point on, Abraham was already a legend. Now he moves to superhero status. Everybody's talking about Abraham. And because Cato Leomer left behind all this loot, as well as all these captives, a rich man, Abraham became even richer. He had all of this stuff now, all of these people, what would he do? And so we see Abraham facing a new test. And again, it's a test of not how he handles adversity, how does he handle this newfound prosperity? Well, the test comes in the form of two kings that he meets. Now, first of all, he meets a king named Melchizedek. Look at verse 18. And Melchizedek, the king of Salem, that was probably ancient Jerusalem. Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine to Abraham. Now he was a priest of the most high God. This is the first time a priest is mentioned in the Bible and his name was Melchizedek. That name probably rings a bell with some of you. Remember in Hebrews chapter seven in the New Testament, the writer of Hebrews uses Melchizedek as an example of the superiority of Jesus Christ. Hebrews is about how Christianity is superior to Judaism. It's superior to every aspect of Judaism. Uh, Jesus was superior to the Old Testament priest that came from the tribe of Levi, The writer of Hebrews says in chapter seven, Jesus isn't like a Levitical priest. He's more like a priest Melchizedek in the Old Testament. See, Melchizedek was both a priest and a king. He was both. So is Jesus. Jesus is a priest and he is a king. That word priest comes from the word pontifex, bridge builder, go-between, mediator. 1 Timothy 2 verse 5 says, for there is one God and one mediator, one priest, one go between between God and men. He is the man, Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ is the only priest you need. I'm not your priest. I can't mediate between you and God. You don't need me. You need the only priest, Jesus. He's the one who builds the bridge between you and your heavenly father. He was a priest, Melchizedek, but he was also a king, and so is Jesus. He's the ruler, the creator over all. Now, what does Melchizedek say when he meets Abraham? He blessed him, verse 19, and said, blessed be Abram of God, most high, possessor of heaven and earth, The word in Hebrew Melchizedek uses for God is El Elyon. It means the creator God, the possessor God, the God who owns everything. God owns everything in this universe because he created everything in this universe. You know, the Christian financial consultant, Ron Blue, says the first principle you need to understand to get your finances in order is that God owns everything. Now, most of us say, okay, that's great, Ron. What's the second principle? Don't skip over that. God owns everything you have. We own nothing. We're just managers, stewards of what belongs to God. And when you understand that, it gives you a whole different perspective on your finances. I know many of you are gonna be praying honestly about what God would have you do in Mission 1A to invest in his kingdom over the next two years. Remember first, God owns it all anyway. It's just a question of how much you're going to give back to what belongs to him. That's what Melchizedek reminded Abraham. Abraham, God owns it all. Look at verse 20. And he goes on to say, and blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Abraham, God's the one who granted you victory over Chedorlaomer. And there's no pushback from Abraham on this. Abraham doesn't say, oh, Melchizedek, you don't understand. God has no hands but my hands. He has no feet but my feet, blah, 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 blah. No, Abraham acknowledges that. And he acknowledges it by, look at what it says. He says, and he gave, Abraham gave a tenth of all to Melchizedek. He gave a tithe of all of his possessions to Melchizedek. This is the first time tithing is mentioned in the Bible. People say, where do you get that idea of giving 10%? Comes from right here, Melchizedek gave a tithe. Now, I know there are people who argue with that. They say, well, that's the Old Testament, that's the law. Christians aren't under law, we give under grace, which for most people means give as little as possible. Uh, That's what grace giving is for many people, give as little as possible without feeling guilty over it. No. No, tithing came before the law. Remember, Abraham lived 400 years before Moses. 400 years before the old covenant was given to Moses, Abraham tithed. And he did so not out of coercion, he did it out of gratitude for what God had done for him. He just naturally wanted to give a tenth of what he had of his possessions to Melchizedek. Now, What does that say to us today? It says, if you're a Christian and you really wanna know, what does God want me to give? And many Christians have that question. I'm a new believer, how much am I supposed to give? Well, I believe the tithe is a starting place. Not necessarily the ending place, but it's the starting place if you really wanna know because it happened long before the law ever came into effect. He gave a 10th of everything he had to Melchizedek. Now, having that encounter with the priest, being reminded that God's the one who gave him victory, prepared him for the second king he met, Barah, the king of Sodom. Verse 21, the king of Sodom said to Abram, "'Give the people to me and take the goods for yourself.'" Now, you know what I stumbled over all week in studying this passage? How did the king of Sodom get out of the tar pit? Last time we saw him, he had fled and was caught up in the tar pit, it says in chapter 14. How did he get out of the tar pit? Well, maybe Abraham rescued him. But when he gets out of the tar pit, he says, Abram, you've got all of this new treasure that belonged to my people, and you've got all of my people, the residents of Sodom. So I wanna make a deal with you. And here's the deal, you keep the money I'll take the captives back, and it's a win-win for both of us. And what does Abram say to that? No deal, no deal. Why, verses 22 and 23, Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal thong or anything that is yours, for fear you would say, I have made Abram rich. He said, if I get into this deal with you, I might be richer for it, but God's glory will be diminished. If I take this money from you and give you the captives back, people will say what a shrewd negotiator you were instead of how great God is. So this is what I'm gonna do. I'm not gonna take any of your possessions. If my men want it, the 318, they're entitled to it, but I'm not gonna take anything from you that would diminish the glory of God. I want people to know God is the one who has given the victory. That explains Abraham's whole life. His whole focus was the glory of God, making God look bigger and better to an unbelieving world. That's why Abraham is the only person whom God called my friend. My friend, Abraham, he got it. He understood the whole reason we're here on this earth for such a brief period of time is to glorify God, to point people to God. And so he refused the riches that the king of Sodom, uh, Bera, offered to him. Now, that would be a great place to end the story. Abraham the Great, once again, glorifying God. But the story doesn't end there. Look at chapter 15, verse one. After these things, after what things? After the raid, the victorious raid on Cater Armour, after paying the tithes to Melchizedek, after refusing the gifts of the king of Sodom, it was after these things that a bad case of believer's remorse set in. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, do not fear, Abram. Why did he say, do not fear? Because apparently, Abraham was fearing. God looked down on his servant and saw him having these restless nights in which he tossed and turned. He said, Abram, don't be afraid. What was Abraham afraid of? He was having believers' remorse for making the right decision. The first phrase describes what he was fearing. What if? What if? He began to wonder, what if? Lee armor isn't defeated. He's just simply regrouping and he's going to come and attack me again. What if, what if, what if? Do you know nothing will paralyze you with fear any more than that phrase, what if, what if? Play these mind games. What if this happens? What does this happen? One time I read an interesting study by Dr. Walter Cavert that says eight, only 8% of the things we worry about actually ever happen. Did you know that? 8%. 92% of the things that we stay awake at night worrying about never happen. Isn't that just like Satan? To paralyze you with what if, fear, lies that never come true. John 8, says, Jesus said, Satan is a liar and he is the father of all lies. God says to Abraham, don't fear, I am your shield. I'm your shield. I'm your perfect protector. You don't have to worry about lay armor. I'm your protector. God says He's our hedge. He has built a hedge around every believer. You know Satan is a liar, but that doesn't mean everything he says that he's a, is a lie. Sometimes even Satan gets it right. Remember what he said about Job in Job 1.10? He said to God, "No wonder Job worships you." Haven't you placed a hedge around him and his household and everything that is his? You're the protector of Job. No wonder he worships you, Satan says. And it was true, God had put a hedge around Job and his family, but then God lowered the hedge. He gave Satan temporary permission to go after Job, but it was all still part of God's plan. Listen to me, that's the reason we don't have to fear. Proverbs twelve twenty one says, no harm befalls the righteous. Now that's a lousy translation of the Hebrew because we know that's not true. No harm befalls the righteous. Lots of harm befalls righteous people. Terrible things happen to righteous people, but that's not what the Hebrew text says. It literally says, nothing without purpose happens to the godly. That is, there is nothing that comes into your life that has not been allowed by a good, loving, perfect God. And if it's come through the will of God, it comes for your good and for the glory of God. Believers don't fear, God is our shield. And then he goes on to say, and I am your reward, Abraham. Why did he say that? I think Abraham not only had a case of the what ifs, but he was also suffering from the if only regrets. Did I really want to give up all that money? <laughs> all that treasure? I could have done some good things with that money. If only I'd kept it, I could trade in my tent for a mansion in Highland Park. I could trade in this lousy chariot for a Sodom sedan. I mean, I could, I could have more. Maybe I made the wrong mistakes. What if I had kept this money? If only I'd kept it, I would be richer. What does God say? Abraham, I'm not only your shield, I am your reward. You know, the Bible says in Hebrews 11:6, 6, those who come to God must believe two things, that God is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently follow him. There is a reward for obeying God. It doesn't always come immediately, but it always comes ultimately. A.W. Tozer in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy said, the most important thing about us is what comes into our mind when we think about God. When you think about God, what comes into your mind? Only those who think of God as their shield, their reward, can avoid the regret and fears that come from making the right decisions. On behalf of Dr. Robert Jeffress and everyone at First Baptist Dallas, thank you for joining us today. Our hope and prayer is that the biblical truth of this message will continue to be a blessing to you as you apply it to your life. For more information about First Baptist Dallas, we invite you to visit our website, firstdallas.org. May God bless you richly today.